If you could open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to read verses 13 through 23. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor... Can a bad tree bear good fruit? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, according to the calendar, at least... It's the first Sunday of summer. Did you know that? That's exciting, isn't it? And I'm remembering a certain summer when I was about seven years old. Um, I was hanging out in the backyard with my, my best friend at the time, Fritz Winnegar. That's an actual person. And um, to our delight, my mother handed Fritz and I each an ice cream bar. That's a good summer day when your mom hands you an ice cream bar. And um, we tore into those ice cream bars, and we were immediately disappointed. You think, well, what could be disappointing um, in a seven-year-old receiving an ice cream bar? Um, Something was really wrong. Um, What we held in our hands looked exactly like the other ice cream bars that we had been given in our career as eaters of ice cream bars, and quite a, quite a long career, seven years, right? And, um, I mean, the texture was off and tasted kind of funny, and they weren't nearly as, as delicious as advertised on the wrapper, and um, the thing of it is is my mom had given us ice milk, not ice cream, <laughs> and that was, that was a thing, that was a new thing, and it was all very um, terrible, <laughs> and... I mean, even as a seven-year-old boy, you know, you, you don't milk ice, right? You milk cows. Everybody knows that. And um, I think that's my earliest experience with imitations. In the parenting world, that's called health consciousness, right? In the business world and in the world of seven-year-old boys, that's called a fraudulent conveyance. And in my lifetime, in my lifetime, there has been a tremendous increase in the imitation industry. 
I mean, things like um, turkey bacon. <laughs> and, and with all due respect to some of you, veggie burgers. That's not a thing. Um, I can't believe it's not butter, right? Everybody knows that's not butter. Everybody believes it's not butter. And, and, and the, the whole idea with um, an imitation is to be just like the real thing without being the real thing. And among God's people, the scripture says, there is an imitation industry. And it churns out false believers with false assurance of salvation. Imitation Christians are those who hang out in the church and and they look and act like Christians, um, but in fact are not really Christians. And a day is coming, says Jesus, when all imitators will be unveiled openly, authoritatively, and with finality. Christ himself will reject all who merely name him, all who have merely done impressive religious works, who spoke and acted like Christians, but were in fact imitations. And so this morning we're confronted with some of the most sobering, soul-searching words in all of your Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Is it really possible for a person to think and act as if they believe upon Christ when in fact they do not? Jesus says, yes. Yes, that is possible. How is this so? How is the imitation Christian different from the real Christian? Well, with God's help, let's, let's consider Jesus' own description of of phony Christianity, or as as some have called phantom faith. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about who Jesus is referring to in this everyone. Not everyone. Well, who's the everyone in the group that's saying Lord, Lord? Well, he's not referring to um, mass murderers and atheists people who are outside the visible church, um, people who make no claim of faith in Christ to start with. That's not who he's talking about. Jesus is referring to church people, people who profess to belong to the kingdom of heaven, men who have a serious understanding of who Jesus is, women who have come to believe that they themselves have a saving faith in Jesus, 
Otherwise, they wouldn't use the term Lord, Lord. And folks, this ought to make us feel quite uncomfortable. If you feel uncomfortable right now, that's normal. You may be abnormal in other ways, but that's not one of them. Hell will be populated in part by churched people, religious people, people who named Jesus, and people who did stuff in the name of Jesus. The title Lord, as you know, that's, that's kingdom language, isn't it? A Lord is a king, a sovereign. The, the, the Lord is the person who has authority over the one addressing him as Lord. In fact, he is the master of the one addressing him as Lord. So to name Jesus as Lord is to name him as master, to name him as king, the supreme authority in your life. So to call Jesus Lord is to proclaim his supremacy. It's to proclaim allegiance to him above all else. Lord, Lord, why is it, why is it repeated like that? Why the, why the double title? Doubling a name like that in Hebrew culture implies intimacy. Intimacy. Not only subjection, but intimacy. Remember when God called out Abraham, um, Abraham, you know, demonstrating his faith in God by um, presenting his son Isaac on that altar and, and God comes to Abraham and says, hey, no, don't, don't do that. Um, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the boy and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only one, from me. So, so when Yahweh, when God said, Abraham, Abraham, uh, that conveyed intimacy. It, it conveyed kinship. God had called, chosen Abram. And in response, Abraham loved God. Now you think of what you know about the life of Abraham and you realize, well, he didn't love God perfectly, did he? I mean, he had a few, few cracks in the earthen vessel, didn't he? Yeah. But at the end of the day, Abraham was loyal to God because he had been overcome by God's own loyal love for him. I wonder this morning, do you love God? You say, well, I'm, I'm, my goodness, I'm at church. I, I'm, at, I'm at church every Sunday. In fact, I even come some Wednesdays. You know, not many people do that. This, this isn't to do with that. Do you love God? When Jesus said one day, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Those were words of kindness. Those were words of tenderness and intimacy. Jesus was her shepherd king. Jesus really knew Martha in that sense. And he knew Martha really knew him and loved him. She just lost her perspective for a bit in the busyness of life. 
So those who truly know Christ as Lord, love him sincerely and live as his subjects willingly. Perfectly? No. Willingly? Yeah. This, this is the fruit of the new birth. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in born-again people. And yet, says Jesus, there are those in the professing church who use the language of intimacy with Jesus and the language of reverence for Jesus, Lord, Lord, and yet they do not really know him savingly because they do not love him from the heart. Within such people, the heart has never been energized with love toward God. And thus they've never yielded allegiance to Christ as King and Savior. We could put it this way. Self remains the primary love and master in the heart of the imitation Christian. And please understand, this is not my material. This is the word of our King who comes to us this morning and says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, Do you remember what the kingdom of heaven is? What is that? Way back when we first started studying Matthew's gospel. It wasn't that long ago, was it? You, You remember this. The kingdom of heaven is the realm in which heaven's king truly reigns. Not as a concept, not as a theological proposition statement, but but in reality. In fact, the first words of Jesus recorded in Matthew's gospel are this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A sinner enters the kingdom of heaven by the narrow gate of repentance and allegiance to Christ as king. Now, just think of the word kingdom for a minute. King plus dominion, kingdom, king and dominion. The kingdom of heaven is the dominion of heaven's king. And I ask you this morning, who has dominion over your life? The kingdom of heaven is a domain in which the king's will is obeyed. The king is honored. The king is loved. The the king is trusted instinctively where, where he's followed willingly and joyfully by his people. That's the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom of heaven is at hand, says Jesus, because the king has come. God's long promised anointed king has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Repent says Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this kingdom is among us even now in every heart in which Christ reigns as king, whom we love. Is that you? Does your conscience testify that that's you? That's why Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Um, 
he who does, that's an active present tense. In other words, right now, in real time, uh, you're living within the will of the Father. There is a God-given desire in your heart to live within um, the, um, uh, the revealed will of God. How many of you know this is the revealed will of God? So let me just say this. Are you still listening? The will of the Father begins with your obeying the invitation to repent and trust in Christ. Not a prayer you prayed 20 years ago. Not your church work that you've done in various times throughout your life. Christ alone. His perfect life exchanged for your imperfect, sinful life. And, and this exchanged life in the born again is an exchange that continues throughout the rest of your days. You're, you're his now and, and you've got a new heart that loves God, that, that seeks to know him more and more. Think of what the Apostle Paul said. What, what do you want, Paul? What's your deal? I mean, what, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the main goal you have in life? And, and Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. They, well, wait a minute, Paul, you're a Christian. I mean, you're a, you're a pastor, you're an apostle. Um, you know Jesus. I, I want to know him more. I love him and I want to know him more. You've got a desire to know him more and to obey him and to live out the revealed will of God. That's the born-again person. Will you do so perfectly? No, but here's the thing. Um, There is a little bit of Abraham and a little bit of Martha in all of us, isn't there? In fact, the truth of the matter is there might be a lot of that in us yet, but the Holy Spirit is chipping off of us all the stuff that doesn't look like Jesus if we're his. And so consciously and purposefully and progressively, we're following Christ. It is not the will of the Father that you simply name Jesus as Lord, name him as your supreme authority, your primary love, when in reality, on the inside, you remain the supreme authority. You remain the primary love. How sobering this is. All true Christians say, Lord, Lord. But listen, not all who say, Lord, Lord, are true Christians. Says who? Says Jesus. Says Jesus. Religious lip service saves no one. That's the point. Right words. Perfectly orthodox Christian words, theologically sound words from a rebellious heart, save no one, says the king. And you might think, well, well, wait a minute now. Um, Jesus isn't just speaking of those who profess him. He, he speaks of those who are actually pretty busy doing religious deeds. Look, look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? In your name cast out demons. In your name do many miracles. These are busy people. These are prominent people. 
to prophesy in this context simply means to, to speak forth the word of God, to speak the truth of God. So Jesus is saying, and get this, a pastor, a teacher, an elder, a deacon, a, a women's Bible study leader, a VBS worker, a, a, a biblical counselor, a worship team member, all who can speak forth the word of God in that sense, it, it's possible um, that they could be not saved. Well, what about casting out demons? What, what, what about miracles? Listen, spiritual power demonstrated in somebody in and of itself is no indicator of saving faith. Says who? Says Jesus. Many in the church, the visible church, are able to do great things and and get great results, and yet that says absolutely nothing about their personal salvation, says Jesus. Think of it this way. You still with me? On this hillside, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sits teaching the multitudes, the disciples, we read in, back in chapter 5, have, have drawn closer. And so you, you can picture Peter there and James there and John there. There's a fellow named Judas is there. And Judas Iscariot, he's always with the Jesus people, isn't he? Um, and Judas, like the others, uh, had been granted the privilege of doing things that the others did, casting out demons, power to heal the sick. So clearly... God may allow spiritual power to course through a person, and yet the person himself, the person herself, remains lost. Notice with me that Jesus does not refute the fact that those saying to him, Lord, Lord, actually did this stuff. It's assumed that they did. Observably, there is no fault in them. Like ice milk in ice cream. Active members of the visible church. They are professing, performing church people on their way to hell and they will find themselves shut out of the kingdom eternally. And in church, we, um, we have to stop here not because it's the end of the message, don't think that, um, but we have to stop here and, and examine ourselves in light of these sobering words. If merely calling Jesus Lord, Lord does not make someone a Christian, and if merely doing impressive religious stuff doesn't make someone a Christian, then, then what does? What does? Look at verse 23. And, and, and I beg you to listen. Just, just look at the text. Listen to Jesus' warning to those with fictitious faith. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I, I want to just slow down a little bit. Who will declare this? Jesus will. Jesus will. This isn't the opinion of the crowd. 
This isn't the measure of self. This is Jesus, the king, declaring this. The word declare um, implies authority. There will be this open declaration of reality that is indisputable. All people will face King Jesus one day and know him either as savior or judge. And I would absolutely not want you to take my word alone for that. Listen to Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. That's our Jesus, isn't it? That's our king, our resurrected king, reigns over all things now, and a day is coming when his rule will be undisputed experientially. Jesus will judge all people. And on that certain unavoidable day of judgment, divine judgment, he will declare to some, Without the possibility of appeal, I never knew you. Depart from me. There will be for all people an examination of the heart. Not the words, not the activities, the heart. And yes, says Jesus, some people will face the judgment uh, pointing to what they've said. And they said all the right stuff. And they'll face the judgment pointing to all that they did. And they did good stuff. And yet Jesus will not claim them as his own. They are nowhere to be found among those he has come to save. Call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And what will they say? We know you, Jesus. Didn't you hear us call you Lord? I mean, didn't you hear our excellent teaching? We're orthodox in every way. We're more Calvinistic than Calvin. We're more reformed than Martin Luther. We're more Baptist than John himself. We professed, we performed We know you, Jesus, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. And that's the rub, isn't it? To be known in that way. What is that? I wonder, church person, active church person perhaps, does Jesus know you as one of his own? In John's gospel, we're told of a a multitude enthusiastically thronging to Jesus outside of Jerusalem, and and they professed belief. They they performed all the right religious duties for for their time as as Jewish people. And John chapter 2 says, Many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing, but Jesus on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. 
And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus sees into the heart, knows the heart intimately. In Luke's gospel, we read of Jesus sending his his first disciples out in pairs, two by two, they go out and they're sort of the advanced teams, the advanced gospel teams. They, they, they visited places where Jesus was going to be. And, and those disciples, 70 of them, Luke says, had, had tremendous success, great spiritual power uh, by God's grace accompanied their visitation to these places. And, and, and the disciples got super excited about this. And maybe even started walking with a bit of a swagger because of it. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Look what we're doing. And Jesus cautioned them with these words. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's, there, there's the thing to rejoice in that the king knows you savingly, that your name is recorded in heaven. So spiritual power can be counterfeited. I mean, think of the um, um, Pharaoh's magicians who mimicked Aaron's staff turning into a snake. That, that actually happened. It wasn't smoke and mirrors. It happened. 2 Corinthians 11 says this, Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. In fact, later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will say that this spiritual power from false prophets, false teachers, fictitious Christians, even in the leadership of the visible church, will actually increase in the last days. Just, just look at the world around you now. Matthew 24, 24, for false Christ, false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now that spoke of Jesus' time, the time of the early church, and it continues to be true today, doesn't it? Listen, on that day, that, that certain day of judgment, what will matter is not your words of profession. What will matter is not your impressive, outwardly religious performance, spiritual power. What, what will matter is not that you profess or perform, but whether Jesus knows you, whether Jesus knows you. That's the salient truth in verse 23. He says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You're still listening. I know I said this earlier, but I really want to slow down a bit because we, we, we need to understand this. I, I want us to just focus on the words never um, and knew and then you. I never knew you, says Jesus. Um, does he mean um, not anymore? No. Never, not ever, at no time did I ever know you. 
I don't know you now, and I will never know you as one of my own, and you will never know me in that way. The narrow gate is closed. The word new, the Greek word gnosko, means to know and understand experientially. It actually comes from a Hebrew idiom uh, that speaks of intimate relationship, like a marriage relationship in that sense. Intimate relational knowledge, close heart relationship. It's the kind of knowing that referred to God's special intimacy with his chosen people, Israel. Listen to Nahum 1, verse 7. Yahweh is good, a strong defense in the day of distress, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Let me ask you something. Have you taken refuge in him? I mean, have you run to the refuge that God in his kindness provides to sinners, the refuge that is Jesus Christ and him alone? Or are you still thinking in terms of a prayer that you said way back when or doing more churchy stuff than non-churchy stuff in your life? Are you today a repenting, Jesus-following person from the heart? Or is yours a phantom faith? Why focus on the word you? Well, that's probably the most simple of this to understand, really, isn't it? Uh, Because this is not an indictment of the false prophets like it was in verses 15 through 20. You know, be, be aware of those guys over there. No, this, this is to do with you. Your salvation is ultimately to do with you, your heart orientation toward God and his Christ. R- Romans 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. So is, is open confession important? Of course it is. I mean, we celebrated that last week with baptism, didn't we? And that's just absolutely wonderful. But, but listen, um, only when that confession is meant from the heart is it reflective of salvation. Saving grace. What do you get when you're baptized apart from saving grace? You get wet. When faith is fictitious, it is because at the heart there is still a rejection of God. At the heart there is still a rejection of Christ as king. That There's still a rejection of, of his will for that person's life. And again, Judas comes to mind. I mean, just think of Judas as the example. Judas professed that he believed. Jesus even performed with the other disciples. But in the heart, there remained in Judas a prevailing self-governance. There remained in Judas a prevailing self-sufficiency. 
And so his religious works ultimately served Judas's own purposes. He was just hanging out with the Jesus people until it was no longer expedient for him to be hanging out with the Jesus people. In fact, the very words spoken by the many in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, just look at the text. Do you see how they sort of betray um, a self-sufficiency? They're, they're pointing to what they've said. They're, they're pointing to what they, they have done. What, what would be the sensible thing? Would it not be to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus? For love's sake, toward the one who came into this messed up world with love in his heart for his sinful people and lived the life they cannot live and died the only human death that would satisfy God's just wrath for your sin and thrill at his empty tomb because he's alive and you're now in his presence. David speaks of this in his penitential psalm, Psalm 51. He says, Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Let me, let me just stop here because it, it, it is often said that, that, that the gospel rightly understood um, comforts the afflicted. And, and I'm thinking just now of Isaiah the prophet. You know, God says through Isaiah, look, um, a bruised reed I will not break. A, a, a smoking wick I will not quench. So Christian, if you're here this morning and you've been beaten up by the world in the past week or maybe most of your life and you have within you a love toward Jesus and a desire to follow him, though your track record of doing so is, is not something you're proud of, I want you to hear in the gospel this morning that there is comfort for you. Christ is sufficient for you. He is your king. But the text we're looking at this morning is to do with the gospel rightly understood in afflicting the comfortable. What's that? Those who take comfort in a prayer they prayed 30 years ago that hasn't changed their life at all. Those who take as their assurance of salvation the churchy stuff they do because it makes them feel more religious than the person who doesn't do churchy stuff, be warned. Be warned. And in Jesus' own words, there is a test of genuineness. How do, how do you discern within yourself the real from the invitation? Well, in verse 21, Jesus points to the many false professors of faith, and then he contrasts them with true disciples. The, the true disciple is who? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
So let's just take that step by step. It is the will of the Father that you forsake your sin and your self-rule. It is the will of the Father that, that you trust in His Son alone for your salvation. Not your words, not your works. Christ alone saves. And it is the will of the Father that you surrender to Christ as Lord and King. As a matter of fact, you cannot have Him any other way. So, so this notion that's bouncing around in churches today about lordship salvation you know, you get saved and then eventually you, you get uh, super saved and now Jesus is your Lord because you make him your Lord. That's heretical. Nobody makes Jesus Lord. He just is. It, it, it's our privilege and our responsibility. And is it not our delight, Christians, to live under his benevolent lordship, to live under his rule, his dominion, Jesus himself says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you see how secure you are in Christ? Do you see how insecure you are? You who are just remembering a prayer in the past, you who are counting on going to church every Sunday, though your heart is indifferent to the things of God? In other words, doing the will of the Father is the opposite of what Jesus describes in verse 23, and we'll end with this, so don't, don't lose heart. In verse 23, he, he says, those who practice lawlessness. Just notice the word practice. Maybe circle that in your friend's Bible. Um, because it refers to something that you're fully engaged in. Like a, a, a doctor practices medicine and a lawyer practices law, the unregenerate practices sin. The unregenerate practices as a lifestyle self-dominion, self-rule. So to profess Christ on the one hand, and then practice lawlessness as a lifestyle, that doesn't go together. That's incongruent. In fact, um, Paul said this to the Corinthians. He says, do, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Remember, Jesus has already said in this very passage, he said a, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so here, here is simply a warning from Jesus. Say, look, you who profess my name, you who do things in my name, if your lifestyle in private is characterized by lawlessness, by self-rule, self-determined dominion, 
um, how can you say that you know me? Let me just end with this. Are you okay? Some imitations are inconsequential. Ice milk, ice cream, who really cares? I mean, I do, actually, but, but I mean, it's, it's not a consequential thing, you know? Um, but, but you really, you know, some imitations are consequential. Even in the physical realm, this is true. When I was in high school, um, my journalism teacher loved Diet Pop. And that was the, back in the day when they had this product called Tab. You guys remember Tab? Yeah, and it, it was sold as a great imitation of Coca-Cola. And um, Tab looked like Coke, and, and it tasted like Coke um, without the sugar and thus without the calories. Um, and, and that's the whole idea of imitation, remember, something that looks real without being real. Anyway, if you looked really carefully at a can of Tab, you'd see a warning label on every can saying that laboratory rats had died drinking this stuff. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Yeah, I don't know how they got rats to drink it, but that, that's not really the point. It was made of stuff that even then was known to be carcinogenic. Some imitations are quite dangerous. In fact, you, you can't buy tab anymore unless there's some kind of black market for tab. I don't know. There might be, but you can't buy it. How much more true is this business of consequential imitation in the spiritual realm. Spiritual imitation is a cancer in the visible church, and it is eternally consequential. Jesus knows the heart. He knows his own. His own know him. And so Jesus makes clear for us that a day is coming when all imitators will be unveiled. And, and we, can, we can think of this church in a, in a, in an, in a glad sense in, in this respect. You won't find fictitious Christians alongside genuine Christians one day like we do now. Why? Because the kingdom in its fullness will have been purified in judgment. But I don't want to end thinking about then. You know, I want, what about today? What about today? Some of you are already thinking, well, we're, it looks like we're yeah, 10, 15 minutes late, and that's, that's not going to work for going to Cracker Barrel and all that stuff. But, but I beg you to think about today. The narrow gate is open today. The narrow gate of repentance from sin and faith in Christ alone is open today. One day it will be closed. Today is the day to forsake your false profession. Today is the day to forsake your trust in religious practices. Just repent of all that. You know, you, you, you find security in that. The Bible says that's a burden. That's a burden that you're carrying and it will not fit through the narrow gate. You need Jesus. And Jesus is calling you, just you, all of you, 
The scripture says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Have, have, have you experienced that refreshment? That, that U-turn of God's grace has happened in your life? Listen, a genuine Christian is being radically changed by a work of God. The natural commitment to sin and self is being conquered in surrender to Christ. That's it. Let, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us, that you love us so much that you warn us away from any dependence upon ourself. What we've said, what we've done, even what we've said to you, even what we've done in your name, if, if apart from your grace, our heart remains our own. Lord, I pray that you would enable repentance among us this day. I, I pray that you would enable love toward you this day. Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your people, your saints, Lord, that by your spirit, you would energize us to continue to walk in your ways. Lord, that we would cooperate and even be glad as you're chipping off all of the stuff that doesn't look like our Savior and King. And we thank you for that day that is coming, that certain day when your bride will have been made ready. Lord, help us to live toward that day, we pray. We ask you this for your namesake. Amen.